0: Congregation, our text for this morning comes to us from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1. And we'll read the entire chapter. Beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock, if his offering is a burnt-off sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests Aaron's sons shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron the priests shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flock, of the sheep, or of the goats as a burnt offering, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire. A sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of his offering to the Lord is of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the side of the altar, and he shall remove its crop with its feathers. And cast it beside the altar on the east side into the place for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever meditated upon what it means that our God is holy? What may come to mind rather quickly is the simple definition that we often use for that word holy, meaning set apart. Our God is set apart, different, unique, all-powerful, and full of might and splendor. These are just a few things that we might consider when we describe God as holy. And I'm sure that we can think of many more. But these terms are merely descriptive. They do not begin to capture the reality of God's holiness. What would it be like to really experience God in His holiness? Think of Isaiah who cried out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or consider the Israelites, who feared for their very lives because they heard the Lord speak from the mountain. And such responses are not limited to the Old Testament. In Revelation of John, we read that John fell at the feet of the glorified Christ as though dead because of the glory of His holy presence. Throughout the Bible, many feared to come into the presence of the holy God on account of their sin and God's holiness. The irony of it all is that God had created people to be in His holy presence, Adam was created good, and he walked with God in the garden. And isn't that the goal of redemption? That a renewed relationship would be established so that we could once again enter into the holy presence of God without fear? Yet so often, beloved, we do not see this as the ultimate goal of the Christian life. We have a tendency to focus on God's redemption from sin. Often we think, as long as I'm saved, all is well. But congregation, this is a very shallow understanding of the Christian life. Redemption, being saved from my sin, is not the goal, but the starting point. Having been redeemed, God desires a renewed relationship with humanity which is only possible when we are sanctified so that we might walk with Him in holiness and enter into His holy presence. And that's the central message of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 2, captures this theme very well. There the Lord commands His people, "'You shall be holy.'" For I, the Lord your God, am holy." And if we look a little closer at the arrangement of the books of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, we observe that Exodus highlights God's work of redemption, salvation from sin. There we read about the Passover and the final plague that led to the redemption of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And from there, God leads His people into the wilderness And he gives them the tabernacle. Exodus concludes in Exodus chapter 40, where when the tabernacle is completed and God descends upon the tent of meeting, filling the tabernacle with his glory. The holy God had come to dwell in the midst of his people, in the very center of the camp. Just imagine, congregation. Imagine the fear These were the same people who had trembled at the sound of the Lord's voice at the mountain. How could they live in the presence of this holy God? And this is where Leviticus begins. Laying out God's answer to this very question through sacrifice. They could be made holy and dwell in the presence of their God. Therefore I proclaim to you God's word under the following theme and points. The burnt offering proclaims our acceptance by a holy God through substitution. And we see our need for a substitute, we see Christ's work as the substitute, and finally we see God's acceptance of the substitute. Beloved, our text begins by making a clear connection to what precedes the book of Exodus. Even though our translation starts with the words, now the Lord called Moses, the Hebrew uses a form that suggests continuation. What's taking place in Leviticus is a continuation of what ends in Exodus 40, and might more accurately be translated as, then the Lord called Moses. And we should also take note that the Hebrew uses the word Yahweh to describe the Lord God, the faithful covenant God, the creator and giver of life, who now dwelt in the tabernacle in their very midst. And he was indeed faithful to that covenant, given to the people of Israel. He gives them the sacrifices that point forward to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we read that the first thing that God does after descending upon the tabernacle is to instruct Moses, his servant, to teach the people a proper response to his presence. There was a way to live, to be in his holy presence through sacrifice. And for this reason, the sacrifices were something that brought great hope for a sinful people. God's deliverance from Egypt was only the first step in God's plan. God brought them out and delivered them so that he might dwell among his people once again. And yet there was still an obstacle to this arrangement humanity's sin. Humanity was not holy. And so our faithful covenant God answers that need through the law of the sacrifice. Verse 2 of our text states that when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock from the herd or from the flock. And here the words for offering is very broad, referring to any offering. The equivalent is the Greek korban, defined by the Gospel writer Mark in Mark 7 verse 11 as that which is devoted to the Lord. But this word fails to convey the deeper meaning of the individual sacrifices that will be explained in the first chapters of Leviticus. And often our own understanding of sacrifice conforms to this very limited definition. We do not distinguish between the various types of sacrifice and gain a deeper understanding of Scripture from their significance. In a general way, we see sacrifice in the Old Testament as pointing to the redemption of Christ on the cross as our sacrificial lamb, in line with the Passover lamb of Exodus. But as we will see, this word serves to introduce five specific sacrifices, each of which has its own specific word and meaning. So there is much more to be learned from the laws of the sacrifice about the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so in verse 3, the regulations for the various sacrifices begin. The verse starts with that conditional word, if, indicating that the one offering a sacrifice had options regarding what type of sacrifice they could bring. And then our text continues, if his offering is a burnt offering. The burnt offering is the first of the five offerings described in the beginning of Leviticus and will be the focus of the sermon this morning. The Hebrew word for this offering is holah, and is actually the root for the well-known word holocaust. This word points to a sacrifice where the victim was completely consumed and went up in smoke toward heaven. And that's why it is often referred to as the whole burnt offering. This is the only offering where no meat is consumed by the priest or the giver. And although our text indicates that the priest could keep the hide, the entire flesh of the animal was burned up. The whole life of the animal was to be offered to God. It was to be presented at the entrance to the tent of meeting. This was an indication that the offering's intent was to make the way clear, to enter in and have fellowship with God. In other words, to sanctify the giver and make them holy, so they might dwell in God's presence. This offering could be taken from the herd of cattle, the flock of sheep or goats, or from the birds, either a dove or a pigeon. And so we read three parallel accounts of the burnt offering in our text, one for each group of animals. The Lord in His mercy makes it possible for anyone to present an offering, from the poorest to the richest. Socioeconomic position was not to be a barrier for entrance into the presence of God. And this is a principle that the Church of Christ continues to maintain. Membership in the Church of Christ is never based on finances regardless of economic position and the type of animal used, there is a principle that permeates the whole burnt offering. The principle of perfection. The giver was obligated to offer the very best. In the case of an animal from the herd or flock, it was to be a male without defect. The male was considered the stronger and more valuable animal, and it was to be perfect. Malachi 1 indicates that it was an abomination to offer an animal that was sick, blind, or lame, as if the holy God would accept second-rate sacrifices. And verse 4 of our text instructs the giver of the burnt offering to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. This laying on of the hand represented the idea of transference or substitution. Simply it meant that the animal was to take the place of the giver. The idea of substitution is found several times in Scripture. In Numbers 8, verse 10, we read about the Israelites laying their hands on the Levites, who took the place of all the firstborn males in Israel as those consecrated for the Lord's service. The authority to bring offerings and perform sacrifices was transferred to the Levites alone. Another example of substitution can be found in Leviticus 16. There we read that Aaron laid both his hands on the scapegoat, representing the transference of Israel's sin to the goat. And so the presenter of the offering, by laying their hand on the animal's head, indicates their desire for that animal to take their place. This substitution was God's answer for one of the Israelites' greatest need, The Lord had created humanity to live in fellowship with Him. God's intent was that humanity would offer their whole lives in holy service to God. But as we've already heard, sin had destroyed that relationship. Humanity incurred the penalty of God's judgment. And to repair the damage, God's just judgment. Required satisfaction. Payment for sin needed to be made. But a sinner was unable to be the perfect sacrifice necessary to make such amends. And so humanity needed someone else to pay the penalty for this failure. Laying the hand upon the perfect animal pointed to that need. The regulation goes on to require the giver to personally kill the animal. Then he shall kill the the animal before the Lord. It was not to be killed by the priest, but by the hand of the giver, except in the case of the bird. This was not a clean and sanitized event. No, the one making the offering put his hand to the task of slaughtering the animal. He did it up close and personal, an indication that his life was bound up with that of the animal. There was no escaping the gruesome reality of the bloodshed that would follow. And it's at this point that the priest collects the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkles it against the side of the altar. This ritual signified that satisfaction had been made through the outpouring of blood. The animal was then cut into pieces and arranged to be burned. The uncleanness of the entrails was washed away to ensure a spotless sacrifice. And then the animal was completely burned with fire. Fire being symbolic of cleansing and purification. And verse 4 of our text clearly lays out the purpose of this sacrifice. There it states that the burnt offering shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The word translated here as atonement conveys the idea of a ransom being paid or the idea that the offense had been stayed or expiated. The emphasis is not on the removal of of sin and guilt but on appeasement the penalty of sin had been paid so that the offerer could be made holy and reestablish fellowship with god his account having been cleared however congregation our reading in hebrews 10 presents us with a seeming contradiction There it says that the offerings were but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. In other words, these sacrifices did not actually accomplish what they represented. And our reading goes on to say that it was impossible for the sacrifices to make perfect those who drew near. And without perfection, it would be impossible to enter into God's holy presence. The sacrificial animal was not the real substitute that was needed. But it pointed to the substitutionary work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The sacrifice anticipated what was to come. And that brings us to our second point, Christ's work as the substitute. Beloved, the whole burnt offering did not itself make atonement for the presenter of the sacrifice, But it rather served as a type, pointing forward to God's plan to send his son. And although the sacrifice did not accomplish what it represented, it was not an empty ceremony either. It had deep spiritual significance for the giver, pointing in anticipation to a blessing yet to appear, pointing to Christ. The Old Testament believer was taught that through the sacrifice, and through that sacrifice, to believe in the perfect one who was to come as the perfect sacrifice and substitute. The one who came with the burnt offering showed in action that he understood his need for a substitute. He could not pay the penalty as our catechism states so clearly when it asks could we ourselves make this payment? And he understood that answer as well. Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt And so he too had to rely on Christ's atonement. The payment of the one who was to come. The offerer believed that the coming sacrifice was necessary to be sanctified and made holy. And so we see that the Old Testament believers were also saved through faith in Jesus Christ. The sacrifice required the believer to trust in the Lord's answer that was being taught through that sacrifice. The congregation... It also teaches us something about our own reality. We who believe must recognize that in our sin, we had nothing to offer in payment for the penalty which we deserved. We, like the Old Testament believers, needed a perfect substitute. And so Leviticus 1 teaches us to place our hand upon our substitute and be united with Him, looking in faith for Him to pay the penalty for us. But it also brings us face to face with the very personal nature of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In placing my faith in Him as my substitute, I condemned Him to death. Christ didn't die for some nameless people on the cross. He died for me. He died in my place. It's as if I held the knife in my hand and took His life like the one bringing that burnt offering. I cannot escape the harsh reality that he died in my stead for my sin. But there is also that ray of hope, familiar to the Israelites, that as my substitute dies, so I in my sin die. And there is a recognition that as that animal is offered up as a perfect sacrifice, so my life should be offered up as a living sacrifice of praise to my God. And that's why Colossians 3, verse 3 tells us, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Being united with Christ in His death means that we also must die to sin. Two verses further in Colossians, we're instructed, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. And this is a good start, but being made holy is not simply a matter of putting to death that which is wrong in my life. Colossians 3, verse 12 and following encourages us to live a holy life by putting on godliness. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And the passage continues to relay what a holy life looks like. And so, beloved, although the emphasis of the burnt offering is on death, It should not overshadow the goal. The hope and joy of the burnt offering points to the fulfillment of God's plan accomplished through Jesus Christ. And its ultimate goal is a life in fellowship with God. An avenue back into the holy presence of God. His blood was poured out in payment for our sin. Our debt was paid in full. His body was given up to cleanse us like the animal burned in the fire so we might be made holy And that we might die to sin and live to God. And having been made holy, that we could be blessed to live in fellowship with Him. This was God's plan revealed by the whole burnt offering. Hebrews 10 makes that clear for us. Verse 8 reminds us that God has neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. The sacrifices were not an end in themselves. Verse 9 shows that Christ presents himself as the burnt offering when he adds, Behold, I have come to do your will. He came to be the sacrifice for us. And our reading goes on to say that by this sacrifice he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, by that will, We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This final sacrifice put an end to the need for the burnt offering. For when the type was fulfilled, there was no longer any need to look forward. But beloved, the reality remains. We still stand in need of Christ as our substitute. Because it's only through his substitutionary work that we are accepted by God, having been made holy. And this brings us to our third point, God's acceptance of the substitute. For the Old Testament believer who brought a burnt offering, it was a sign of faith in the Lord's plan to create a way for renewed fellowship. Verse 4 states that it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The term accepted has the idea that the sacrifice was efficacious, or perhaps you might say effective, in establishing and bringing about reconciliation between God and the giver. The account had been settled and the relationship repaired. Our text indicates that the Old Testament believer was not left wondering about their status with God. Faith in the future fulfillment of the sacrifice was still faith in Jesus Christ. Our reading in Hebrews 10 verse 14 tells us of the power of that sacrifice. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The New King James uses the word forever instead of all time. And I would argue that for all time is is better because it indicates that Christ's sacrifice settled the account for the past, for the present, and for the future. Those for all time. Past, present, future are made holy and acceptable to God in perfection through the work of our Savior Jesus Christ. It confirms what our confession on justification states in Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, that God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And it pleased God to work salvation in this way. Each of the sections on the various burnt offerings end in the same way describing the burnt offering as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Two of the other offerings are also described in this way, the thank offering and the fellowship offering. And what all three of these offerings have in common is their focus on humanity's restored relationship with God. God is pleased because He, in His covenant love for His people, desires that the broken relationship between humanity and God be restored. And it brings God joy to live in the midst of a holy people. And that's also the good news for us this morning. The news that when we place our faith in Christ as our atoning sacrifice, we can be assured of a renewed fellowship with God, just like the Israelites who came with the burnt offering. Christ's sacrifice has paid the price for my sin so that I am justified before God. And my life can rise up before my maker as a pleasing aroma. And the New Testament believer experiences even more than their Old Testament counterparts. God no longer dwells at arm's length in the tabernacle. With the fulfillment of the burnt offering, the way it was made clear into the holy presence of God. The temple curtain was torn so that we might, and those who believe in the new dispensation, have also received God's Holy Spirit. He no longer dwells in the holy of holies, but in our hearts. We experience His presence now. Isn't that how our reading in the Hebrews concludes? And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. We have become temples of the Holy Spirit Vessels in union with a holy God. And then the author of the Hebrews gives us the joy of these comforting words. For those living in this renewed relationship with their God, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Because Christ is my substitute, I am accepted into the presence of my holy God. Amen.